Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So We're very blessed to have Dr. Stephen Smith back with us this evening. Thank you. How many of you have been to the eye doctor uh, in the last year or two, especially to get outfitted for glasses or contacts or get your eye exam done. Let me see a show of hands. There we go. Okay. Almost everyone or at least every table, right? Uh, so recently I had to take my 12-year-old daughter for the exam and it turned out she needed glasses. And after we were all done and she was excited and got her lenses and I asked her how it went and she said, well, it was okay, but it got kind of annoying after a while. I said, well, what was annoying about it? She said, well, he kept asking me the same question. I said, what question was that? And she said, how does that feel? How does that look? You know, and then she would say, more clear, less clear, just about right. And I said, well, Isabel, he had to do that in order to get your prescription exactly right before it goes to the lens crafters that actually make the lenses. And she said, oh, I see. So he wasn't just asking me the same question over and over. He was making me look through the viewfinder so I could get exactly the right lenses for me. And I said, yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I think we can apply that idea to the study of Scripture. We need to have the right lenses on when we read the Scriptures. So please have your Bibles out with you, and um, let's open up and, and look at the book of Genesis. Specifically, in this series, we're going to talk about Genesis 1 and 2. This series I'm calling The Liturgy of Creation. The Liturgy of Creation reading Genesis 1 and 2 with the wisdom of the church. Now, I would say that some people get all tricked up, tripped up in reading Genesis because they don't necessarily have the right lenses on with which to see what God is saying. In one sense, there are those who approach the text with a purely scientific lens, Maybe that was a little bit of what the conversation went like on Sunday. I didn't get a chance to go, but it sounds terrific. And that purely scientific lens, to the extent that it would exclude faith, does become a kind of secular way of looking at the text with only reason or reason alone. And it would lead some who have purely a scientific view. Notice I'm saying purely, which would mean to the exclusion of faith. We're not talking about those who want to engage the questions of science. We're talking about a purely scientific view. Might well end up with the disposition that, say, Stephen Hawking has, which is that essentially it's a problematic fairy tale which leads people away from the true scientific discoveries. On the other hand, there are others who read Genesis through what I would call a literalistic lens. And by that I mean a kind of lens that looks at Scripture with faith, but not necessarily in a reasoned way. Um, for example, if I went with, say, um, a Christian fundamentalist or someone who reads Genesis 1 literalistically, they might have a problem if we went to the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History 
right, and looked at, for example, the dinosaurs or the fossils, and they might say, you know, come up with a, a real tension there. In fact, I remember talking with a friend of mine, very great guy who was an uh, evangelical Christian a number of years ago, and we were talking about paleontology, and he said, you know, what happens, the reason when a paleontologist looks at a fossil that's said to be 60 million years old, he said, it's not actually 60 million years old. And I said, it's not? He said, it's no. It's only about 6,000 years old, but the flood that God brought about in the story of Noah was so intense and so spectacular that it had this kind of um, age, uh, um, uh, ageifying effect on the earth in which it makes everything look much older. And I said, do you have a helicopter or know someone who's got a helicopter because this conversation is about to get stuck in the mud, <laughs> right? Now, and I don't mean to put him down, but it's just to say that his particular lens allowed him to only see six days of creation, the world 6,000 years old because scripture says, and God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And I would argue that while these two points of view, the purely scientific point of view and the literalistic point of view are very, very different, they have a similar problem. In fact, they have the same problem. And that is that they're not reading the scripture in this case, with a proper set of lenses. So my hope for us tonight is to make sure that we've got the right lenses on as we're reading Genesis 1 and 2. Sound good? Yeah. Oh, okay. So here is the way it's going to unfold. Tonight we're going to talk about, in part one, the temple of creation. And next week we'll continue on our theme and go a bit further. This is, by the way, uh, over on the screen, an illustration of what the temple might have looked like in Jesus' okay. day. Um, now, um, the thesis for this series is very simple. If you have the handout that says the liturgy of creation, why don't you pull that out. Those other illustrations are really just a visual aid for you, and I may refer to a few of the slides, which are basically what you have on your black and white handout there. But let's look at the thesis. The aim of this two-part series is to help us dig deeper into Genesis 1 and 2, as I said, to put the right lenses on. Our approach is going to explain how an ancient Jewish liturgical reading, an ancient Jewish liturgical reading, or lens, of these texts unlocks many hidden mysteries which mo many modern readers of Genesis remain un unaware of. As a result of our meditation, this week and next, on these sacred texts, my hope is that God will strengthen our understanding of his word, first and foremost, that number two, he'd give us a deeper appreciation of our own sacred liturgy in light of what I call the liturgy of Genesis. Number three, that he would empower us to live out its truths with joy and fidelity. And above all, number four, that he would enkindle in our hearts a courageous desire to share the good news with the world around us. Now before we get to the, that lens, this liturgical lens, we have to do a little bit of background work. That will be Roman numeral 2, and the lens is going to come in Roman numeral 3. So let's look at the background. Roman numeral 2, first things first, putting aside myth and approaching Genesis 1 and 2 with the eyes of both faith and reason. Now the catechism, I would argue, gives us a good start towards getting those right lenses when it says this. Quote, God himself created the visible world in all its richness, diversity, and order, 
And Scripture presents the work of the Creator symbolically, notice it doesn't say mythologically, right? But symbolically, as a succession of six days of divine work, concluded by the rest on the seventh day. So the Catechism is trying to fit us for the right pair of lenses with this key idea of a symbolic reading of the text. I think Albert Einstein might actually appreciate that if he were to read it. Because he said, I want to know how God created the world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon, in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thoughts. I want to know his thoughts. The rest are details. And the Catechism is saying that the symbolic language of Genesis is revealing the truth that the living God created the universe out of nothing. Let me bring in here another voice, and that is Dr. Christopher Baglow. He's a colleague of mine and teaches at a seminary uh, in New Orleans. Here's what he says. When one reads Genesis 1 through 3 closely and carefully, one is able to see both its power and its beauty. But more background is necessary to fully grasp its truth. Some people who regard themselves as scientific dismiss the text as a primitive myth, the product of a Bronze Age desert kingdom. Ironically, Bagelow says, they have this dismissive attitude in many cases, not because they know more than the theologian does, but because they know far less. And it is precisely because they do not really understand human history and the human context in which the text was written that they cannot hear God's voice within it. In other words, echoing what I said a moment ago, they don't have the right lenses on. Now, he goes on to say this, uh, page two. There's a further irony, Dr. Baglow says. The scientific atheist dismisses Genesis, the Genesis 1 account of creation, as myth and superstition. But hang on. Not realizing that it was actually written, among other things, among other goals, in order to dismiss myth and superstition. Did you catch that? Part of the aims of the book of Genesis is in fact to dismiss or dismantle myth and superstition in the world around it in what are known as the pagan creation myths. So I have a quote for you from one of these creation myths that Genesis is trying to interact with. Now, by saying interact, I don't mean that it's drawing its uh, inspiration from or copying to the contrary, I would argue that Genesis is acting as a kind of an apologetic, saying, not that way, but this way. Okay, here's from the Enuma Elish, under point one, Babylonian creation myths. When in the height heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, and the primeval Apsu, it's the name of a god, who begat them, and Tiamat, another god, saltwater chaos, the mother of them both mingled together their waters, then in the midst of heaven were created the gods, plural. Now if I were to read you other quotes from the Enuma Elish or other pagan myths of the ancient world, what you would see is very uh, 
different things than we find in the text of Genesis. For example, first and foremost, not one true God, but many gods create. Not only that, these gods are not all working collectively as one big happy team, but there is all sorts of backbiting and uh, uh, violence and hijacking and usurping of power between the gods, gods colluding with certain human figures and so on. It's one big happy violent mess. <laughs> um, now upon this, uh, our former Pope Benedict, Joseph Ratzinger, wrote this in a beautiful little book called In the Beginning, Homilies on Genesis. He says this, and this is the next quote. He says, here in Genesis, we see the, uh, what he calls the audacity and the temperateness of the faith. That in confronting the pagan myths, made the, truth, the light of truth appear by showing that the world was not a demonic contest, but that it arose from God's reason and reposes on God's word. So in some sense, what Ratzinger is telling us is that in putting on the right lenses, we need to see that in some sense the author of the text is engaging these myths to counter them as a kind of apologia, as a kind of an apologetic. Not this way, but this way did God create the world. And by the way, not many gods, but one God, right? All sorts of differences in the pagan myths. For example, fertility is often a curse in these myths. So as the world begins to populate, it's not be fruitful and multiply, but sit down and shut up. Uh, and the gods are unhappy with the noise that the human population is making, and guess what? Are going to send a flood to do away with it, okay? So you see some similarity, but also difference. And Ratzinger's point is well taken that, in some sense, the text of Genesis is engaging and countering these pagan myths with the true story of how God created the world, and it uses the language of the seven days. Now, we're still under Roman number one, the background stuff, but let's go one step further under letter E. And I want to explain to you what I call the interplay between literary form and content in Scripture. There is a need for us, in order to get the right lenses on, to delineate between form and content. I don't know why form is not capitalized, but it should be. Between form and content in Scripture. All Scripture, whether it's the Gospel of John, the book of Genesis, Isaiah, is comprised of both literary form and content. Let me define these. By form, I mean the literary shape, style, or genre, or classification, you might say, employed by the biblical author. Now, I should add a clarification, that it's not as though the author of Genesis or the apostles went to literary form school, right? They didn't. But it's the idea that there's a certain kind of almost contractual agreement between the author and the audience, right, that says this is how it's going to be presented in a way that the author knows the audience will best understand. So a parable, a miracle story, right, the creation narrative, all types of literary forms. Why did the author choose it? Well, the author chooses the form to suit the content and to suit the audience in a way that will best make sense of it. So the content is the underlying message. In this case, Genesis 1 and 2. It's the substance. It's the truth of what, this, what the form delivers. The form is always at the service of the content and is selected by the biblical author as the best manner in which to convey the particular truth in light of the audience's worldview. Well, that's so good it should be in a book. It is. It's in my book on the word of the Lord. 
I'm being a little snotty, but I, I like that. I like that phrasing there. So, all right. Um, but I think that that's uh, a, an accurate way of describing the relationship between the two. Now, let's go back to Genesis one. We have the six days of creation. People say the seven days is really six days, called the hexameron. The six days of creation, God rests on the seventh. Ratzinger again says that the classical creation account in Genesis, get this, is not, is not the only creation text in sacred scripture. It's the one we're all familiar with, but it's not the only one. Now, uh, letter 3, 4, and 5 on the page are examples of other, uh, other examples within scripture of creation accounts. And guess what? None of them have the language of the seven days. They all have the language of wisdom or lady wisdom or Sophia in the Greek as being the one through whom the world was created. No mention of seven days or any days. Right? Let's take a look. Proverbs 3 and then also Proverbs 8. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth by understanding the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke forth and the clouds drop down the dew. So that's Proverbs 3.19. Notice the Lord by wisdom founded the world. Now here's the key one in chapter 8, a bit later. The Lord created me, wisdom speaking here, at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now I'm going to shift to the King James for this last part. That was from the RSV. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, here's how the KJV puts it, before there was ever an earth. Wow. Now, I'm not going to read the one from Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon, but along the same lines, it's uh, wisdom creating and fashioning the world. Before the world was, is Lady Wisdom. So, that leads to a question, right? Well, how did it happen? Was it the six days of creation, as in Genesis 1 and 2? Or did Lady Wisdom do it somehow all on her own in one fell swoop? Here's what Ratzinger says, next page. <coughs> In its, in its confrontation with Greek or Hellenistic civilization, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, such as Proverbs, reworks the theme of creation, notice this, without sticking to the old images, such as the seven days. Thus we can see, he says, how the Bible itself constantly adapts, readapts its images. In other words, the literary forms, the images to a continually developing way of thinking, right? Different author, different audience, different literary form, different presentation, different vehicle of delivery. To a continually developing way of thinking, how it changes in order to bear witness time and again to the one thing that has come to it in truth from God's word, which is the message of his creating act. In other words, the content. That's stable, whether you're looking at Genesis 1, Proverbs 8 or wherever. That's stable, right? It's only the form that changes. And I hear this really startles my seminarians when I read this next quote. Because for them, it's pulling the rug out from under the six days of creation. Listen to this very interesting quote. In the Bible itself, the images are free and they correct themselves over time, Ratzinger says. In this way, they show by means of a gradual and interactive process that they are, wait for it, only images. Everyone say it with me. They are only images which reveal something deeper 
and greater. Repeat that last part with me. Which reveal something deeper and greater. We're already on our way to get fitted for some very nice lenses here with the help from Cardinal Ratzinger. Okay? So we need to distinguish between form and content is the main idea. Okay, so much for our background work. Now, let's actually get to these new lenses, to this liturgical lens that I've been talking about and warming you up for. Okay, so from here on out, we're going to talk about this ancient Jewish way of reading the scripture. First, Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Worshiping God in his holy temple. Worshiping God in his holy temple. Numerous clues overwhelmingly suggest that Genesis 1 portrays the whole of creation as God's divine sanctuary or temple and that Eden is the holy place within this cosmic temple. The whole of creation is God's sanctuary and Eden in particular is the holy place. Um, I'll put a picture up here of the temple for you if I can find it. This is an image um, I think this is the pointer, yay, all right. Here's an image of the tabernacle in ancient Israel. You have a black and white handout of this, right? The priest standing out here, you've got the blue curtain, another blue curtain inside, right? Here's what it looks like. And this area right here is known as the holy place. There's the menorah inside, there's the table of the bread of the presence, that's another whole great talk. And then in here is the, the Ark of the Covenant. This part right here that's partitioned off is called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, as the temple grew, this is the temple in Jesus' day, much, much different. First of all, it's permanent. I like to call the tabernacle God's sort of temple on wheels, right? Moving along through the desert. Uh, but here's the permanent structure of Solomon's temple, actually Herod's temple in Jesus' day. And what I was just showing you here, right, has now grown because the holy place and the most holy place is now right here inside this interior building, right? So you've got the holy place here, and in the back recess is the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest goes once a year. Okay, just to we'll leave this up here as we talk a bit more. Okay, so the idea is that, in a sense, Genesis is portrayed by the author as a kind of divine sanctuary, and Eden is the holy place, without a question. And that man, and in fact all of creation, was created and designed for worship. For worship. Now, let's move on to the next point, point B. I'm going to show you two mysteries tonight. The first one, mystery number one, the sacred space of the Garden of Eden. The sacred space of the Garden of Eden. A close examination of Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that the whole of creation is a cosmological sanctuary with the focal point being the Garden of Eden as its holy place. Such depictions are not without precedent. Numerous ancient texts in both uh, in Scripture and beyond the Hebrew Scriptures develop along similar lines as Genesis. There's been a lot of literature written about this. I'm not going to obviously bother with the footnotes, but all of those are just some recent research on creation as a temple. I have a, also a, a CD series, an upcoming book on this, on the temple of creation um, as well. But here are some of the clues for this claim that I'm making. Letter C. The first clue would be a name of God, specifically the God of the mountain. Let me go back to this other slide here. This on your handout is sort of how the Jewish mind conceived of the world with God in the heavens above, right? The earth right here in the center 
And then Sheol, which is the lowest point beneath the earth, right, is the place you go when you die. You can take a look at that on your handout. But let's talk about the God of the mountain. The God of the mountain. You've ever heard that in scripture? Probably not. But I'll bet you heard of El Shaddai, yes? Who's heard of El Shaddai? Almost a lot of you, right? One of the names of God in the Old Testament, El Shaddai, translated mighty God or God Almighty. Who's heard God Almighty or mighty God, right? All of us. But a more precise translation or accurate translation from the Hebrew might be El, God of the mountain. El, God of the mountain. El Shaddai is the name by which God revealed himself to Abraham enacting the covenant through circumcision. In other words, when God calls Abraham to circumcise his son, he reveals himself as El Shaddai, Mighty God or Almighty God, or better translation, I'm suggesting, El, God of the mountain. Same thing to Jacob um, later in Genesis. In fact, and here's the key point about the mountain business, in all of the major covenants of the Old Testament between God and his people are all forged on mountains. Think about it. God covenants with Noah on Mount Ararat in Genesis 8. God covenants with Abram or Abraham on Mount Moriah after the, quote, sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. Then God covenants with Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 20 through 24. And then finally, God makes an everlasting covenant with David on Mount Zion. And we could make that argument through to the New Testament and say the new and everlasting covenant happens on Mount Calvary, right? So, next point. The temple of Mount Eden. Notice Mount Eden. Did you catch that? As we learned just a moment ago, El Shaddai, the God of the mountain, covenants with his people on holy mountains. Moreover, in the ancient world, mountains were considered holy ground. The first temples where one went to, where one went to meet God and to speak to and hear from God. So it's natural that covenants would take place on mountains. But here's the maybe surprising news. Eden, as well, is presented as a holy mountain. Did you know that? Eden is presented as a holy mountain and as a kind of primordial temple. It is here that God places Adam, formed out of the ground, to serve the Lord in his temple. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. We call it the Garden of Eden, but Eden is a much bigger place than maybe at first we thought. In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Genesis 2, verse 7 and 8. Genesis 2, verse 10 supports this. It reads, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Now, in the ancient um, Jewish worldview, they often talk about the four corners or four ends of the earth. And so, many would uh, believe, and I would be with them, that the four rivers kind of symbolically represent the four ends of the earth. So, if the river flows out of Eden and waters the four corners of the earth, fructifying it, so to speak, right? There's a sense in which it's flowing down and out, right? Current goes downstream. So even in the sense, implicitly, there's a sense that Eden is this high place from which the waters flow. But if that doesn't yet convince you, look at Ezekiel with me in the next quote. Roman numeral four, Ezekiel 28. Listen to what he says. You were in Eden the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, carnelian, topaz, etc. On that day you were created 
They were prepared, now watch this. With an anointed guardian cherub I placed you, you were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. So Ezekiel assumes that the Garden of Eden lies atop a holy mountain, as did many other ancient Jews. The Garden of Eden is not viewed by the author of Genesis simply as a piece of Mediterranean farmland, one uh, scholar Gordon Wenham writes, uh, but as a, an archetypal sanctuary or temple, a place where God dwells and where man should worship him. And many of the features of the garden were also found in later sanctuaries, particularly, he says, the tabernacle or Jerusalem temple. These parallels suggest that the garden itself is understood as a kind of sanctuary. And by the way, when you go to the temple in Jerusalem, it is replete with imagery of Genesis. I don't know if you can see it on the... Um, oh, there it is, a blow up here, right, of the, um, of the holy place. This large urn outside called... Uh, the sea, which represented the seas of the earth. All of the um, temple interior, which was mahogany covered in gold, had murals which proclaimed the creation. So it's like in Genesis, the world is forged as a kind of temple, and when you step into the temple, it also reflects that the temple is a kind of vision of the creation. They go hand in hand. Okay, next page, if you would. How are we doing on time, Monica? Doing good, okay. God in his holy house. God in his holy house. God's movements towards Adam and Eve in the Genesis 3 are another piece of evidence here. Because they mirror God's later movements in the temple. Specifically in later liturgical texts that pertain to the temple, there is a verb that is used to describe God's moving to and fro in the temple, and that verb is mithalek. In Leviticus 26, for example, it says, And I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I, the Lord, will michalek, walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Now, as you know, Leviticus is the quintessential liturgical book, and this is God talking about in his temple with his people. Okay, go back to Genesis 3, where we read, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Same term is used, mithalek. As one scholar observes, Israel's temple was the place where the priest experienced God's unique presence, and Eden was the place where Adam walked and talked with God. The same Hebrew verbal form, mithalek, used for God's walking back and forth in the garden, also describes God's presence in the tabernacle or later temple. Yet another piece of evidence. So we've got the imagery of the mountain, right? We've got God's walking, which is really liturgical language. Now let's step back and talk a little bit about this cosmic temple. If you were to visit the temple in Jesus' day, or its forerunner on wheels, the tabernacle, the first thing that you should know is that the temple was to be a blueprint or copy of the heavenly tabernacle. Here's what the Book of Wisdom says. Thou hast given a command to build a temple on thy holy mountain and an altar in the city of thy habitation, a copy of the holy tent which thou didst prepare from the beginning. So the way that the temple is designed is meant to be a mirror image of the heavenly temple. Now there are three main divisions in the Jerusalem temple and I'm going to argue 
along with a lot of other folks here, I would, I would say as well, that Eden itself is described in this threefold fashion. Here's the main three parts. The outer courts, the holy place, and the holy of holies. So what I want to do is just walk you through quickly each one of these and compare it to Genesis, okay? First, the outer courts. Let's start in the outermost perimeter. Let's go back to this image here of, um, there we go. Okay, so the outer courts, um, you have the court of women, um, which is where all Israelites could gather, men and women. The court of the Israelites in here where only priests and also men could enter. And then the holy place where only priests and then finally the holy um, of holies where only the high priest, one singular person, could go once a year on the Day of Atonement. But the Truly speaking, the outermost courts is this area right here, which is called the Court of the Gentiles. This is the area, by the way, where Jesus would have turned over the tables of the money changers because they would have been largely Gentiles and they would, uh, were not allowed to enter into the temple proper, into this space out here. Okay? So, strictly speaking, this is the outer courts where the Gentiles are. All right? Okay. Um, the core principle is this, as I say in Roman numeral 4. God is holy and anything or anyone that is nearest to him must be holy. Hence, the outer courts represent the outer regions of the earth beyond the mountain or garden. In Genesis, this corresponds to the land beyond the garden that was created good but is nevertheless uh, wild and needing to be tamed. It was Adam's missionary territory, right? Go and subdue, right? Be fruitful and multiply. That subduing had to began in the garden, but was not limited to the garden. Name the animals, right? Bring order, right? Becoming a co-creator with God at God's command, and bring that to the ends of the earth. And in the same way, those who came to the temple to experience God's presence and through sacrifice and worship were called to go back out and to renew the earth and to be witnesses and lights to all of God's people and then to the ends of the earth. So that's the idea of the outermost courts. And there's definitely a comparison there. Um, let us see. The land and seas to be subdued by Adam outside the garden were roughly equivalent to the outer courts of Israel's subsequent temple, the court of the Gentiles, as it were. Thus, one may be able to perceive an increasing gradation in holiness from outside to inside, right, proceeding inward. Okay. Um, what about the holy place? In the Jerusalem temple, this was the covered structure located at the farther interior space, as again, right back over here on the slide. It was the place for priests and priestly actions. And in Genesis, this corresponds to the garden area itself and everything within the garden's parameters. The author of the ancient Jewish book called Jubilees, which is written about 200 BC, certainly grasped this temple structure of Genesis when he wrote, quote, Noah knew that the Garden of Eden was the holy place of the Lord. Yet another piece of corroborating evidence there. So the Garden Temple was created as the icon of heaven and importantly, importantly, as the primary place where those with the eyes of faith in holiness encounter the divine presence and a divine mission to sanctify the world beyond Eden, that the temple would grow as the faithful multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Finally, third and finally, the most holy place. Veiled within the holy place was the sanctum sanctorum, right? The holy of holies, kodesh kodeshim in Hebrew, in which the Ark of the Covenant was kept and God's presence mysteriously dwelt upon it in a special way. Of course, God dwelt in heaven alone, right? In 
general sense, but in some particular way, he was really present in that holy of holies upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Compare that to the book of Genesis, and in a sense, I think you end up at the tree of life. So that the tree of life is in some sense a parallel to, um, to the holy of holies in the temple. And guess what? What you find in the holy place was actually a menorah, which in some sense resembles a tree with seven lights. The illustration of Eden might look something like this, and you have it on your handout. The holy of holies atop Mount Eden where God dwells. The holy place is the garden itself where Adam and Eve dwell, right, at the base of Mount Eden, with the sustaining tree of life, the menorah, you might say, in their midst. The reminder of God's presence and call to immortal life and to sanctity. Adam's call was to keep and work the garden. I'm working my way through the outline of the graphic here. And with the woman to enjoy the presence of God. And then finally, the outer courts. The land and the sea beyond the garden. Good. Created by God. Good. But chaotic and needing to be tamed or subdued and transformed. Okay? Now that's the first principal mystery that, uh, point that I want to make tonight. Uh, but there's another one that I want to make. And that is that the number seven appears in Genesis 1 in a very ingenious way. So I want to talk about the number of seven and why it matters. Again, we're trying to put on the lenses of an ancient Jewish liturgical um, glasses to read Genesis with. We've already laid down the foundation that says Genesis is portrayed as a kind of uh, temple, the creation as a temple, and the Garden of Eden is the holy place. Okay, so here's the number seven is encoded in the narrative of Genesis 1. Listen to this. Genesis 1 is exactly seven words. I'm not going to make you say this one, but here it is. Barashith bara Elohim et hashamayim wa'et ha'eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Count them up. Seven words. Exactly seven words. There are three nouns used there, which are very important. Elohim, shamayim, and eretz. God, heavens, and earth. And they occur in what follows... So it's sort of like verse 1 stands alone, and then there's seven paragraphs, okay? So that's kind of uh, verse 1. Now, in what follows, there are seven paragraphs. Elohim occurs 35 times. Who cares so what? Well, just so happens that that is a multiple of seven. Five times seven. Shemayim occurs 21 times, three times seven. Sh uh, and also Eretz, earth, occurs 21 times, three times seven. Want more? Okay. There's a doubling from verse 1 to verse 2. 14 words in Genesis 1, verse 2. Following 1, 1, which stands apart, the remaining text the remaining text of Genesis 1 unfolds in seven paragraphs, as I said, each of one of which pertain to the seven days. In paragraph 1, the nouns or and yom, light and sea, occur seven times. Or occurs another seven times in paragraph 4. Mayim, water, occurs seven times in paragraphs 2 and also 3. Ayah, creatures, occurs seven times in paragraphs 5 and 6. Next point. The key phrase, ki tov, it was good, occurs seven times in Genesis 1. The seventh and final is unique. It is located in the final verse of the chapter, 131. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, ki tov me'od. It was very good. Finally, one would think that the natural break is between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but it's not. It's not the end of Genesis 1 is the end of Genesis 1. It's actually Genesis 2, verse 3. I kind of got the numbers a little bit off there, right? Genesis 2, verse 1 through 3 is in effect paragraph 7 of the sevenfold 
uh, framework in Genesis 1. And in paragraph 7, which presents the seventh day concerning the Sabbath, there are three sentences, each of which are comprised of seven words and contain in the middle the identical expression, Hashavi. Say that one with me. Hashavi, the seventh day. Here it is. And on Hashavi, God finished his work which he had done, and he rested on Hashavi from all of his work which he had done. So God blessed Hashavi and hallowed it. As the late rabbi and renowned biblical scholar Umberto Casuto, early 20th century, commented, to suppose that all of this is mere coincidence is not possible. But what does it mean? And what could it be its significance? This decisive pattern in Genesis 1, what I call the architecture of sevens, conveys something remarkable and powerful. The creation culminates with God's rest on the seventh day. The term is Shabbat in Hebrew, Sabbath. And Sabbath is, is the key to unlocking the mystery of sevens. Here's why. As the Catechism reminds us, the Sabbath is at the heart of Israel's law. Ratzinger says that creation is designed in such a way, next page, that it is oriented towards worship. We already had a hint of that already, right? With the idea that you've got a temple, you go there to worship. Ratzinger adds, in the creation account, the Sabbath is depicted as the day when the human being, in the freedom of worship, participates in God's freedom, in God's rest, and thus in God's peace. To celebrate the Sabbath means to celebrate the covenant. Repeat that last line again. To celebrate the Sabbath means to celebrate the covenant. Very nice. In Scripture, the Sabbath is and always has been about much more than taking a break, going to church because God ordained a day of rest. It is that at the very, very least. Amen? But it is about much more as this cacophony of sevens reveals. It is about God's perfecting of creation. The Sabbath is about God's perfecting of creation. And when, what does the Sabbath follow? What immediately precedes it? Go back to Genesis chapter 1, right? At the end. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then come follows the blessing. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Right? And then verse 31, as I suggested, that final, it was good. This time it's, it was very good. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. The impression here is of the painter who has finished the masterpiece. He's standing back apart from it, right? And marveling at his own work with delight. And he says it was very good. But only when he creates the man and the woman in his image and likeness does he finally say, Ki tov meod, and it was very good. 
In other words, the creation of man in, man, in the man and the woman, is the climax of creation on day six. So in chapter two, the seventh paragraph, as it were, of, chap of Genesis one, right, we read this. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, Shabbat, God finished his work which he had done and rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. So three times we have that repetition of the phrase the seventh day, ha-shavi, right? Um, in Hebrew, the, um, our B has sort of a V sound. So it's not ha-shavi, Right, but more sort of a soft be hashavi. What's the significance of the sevens then? Right? Again, in scripture, the Sabbath is and has always been about more than resting from our work. I think that's only half of the measure, half of the way there. In this temple language of Genesis 1. It is about God's bringing creation to its telos, to its end, to its perfectedness, to perfection. Another point needs to be made. This is letter V on the last page. In Hebrew, the term for Sabbath and seven are uncanny in relation to one another. Here are the two terms, and I'll say them for you. Shabbat and Shabbath. Shabbat and Shabbath. Say them with me. Shabbat and Shabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath rest, right? Perfecting of creation. And Shabbath being the term for seven. Hashavi, Shabbath, seven. So this suggests that all along from day one right through to day seven, right, with all those sevens going on, all of the sevening was pointing forward to the seventh day, to the perfecting of creation, created for worship. All of the Shabbats lead to Shabbat, to the perfecting of God's creation. The cacophony of Shabbats or sevens in creation prepares us for the perfecting of creation when the newly created man enters into God's perfection into God's presence and God's rest, into his Shabbat. Even more stunningly is that the noun Shabbat, seven, the number of perfection, by the way, in Scripture, has a verbal form, Shabbat. Can you say that one with me? Shabbat. Now, that, as a verb, that just sounds weird, right? How do you, what, two, seven something? Yes. To seven something, Shiva, in a Hebrew understanding, is to swear an oath. When you swear an oath, you Shiva. You bind yourself to something. Um, you've probably all heard of Beersheba, right? Like from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is way up in the north, one of the tribes of the north, and Beersheba was um, down in the south. So it's like saying from north to south, from Dan to Beersheba. When we say Beersheba, a more appropriate Hebrew pronunciation would be Beersheba. 
Beer is um, well, and Shiva, you already know, is uh, to seven something or to make an oath or to bind it. So it's the well of the oath. That's what that means. In other words, in Genesis 1, as God creates, his glorious acts of creation cry out that he is sevening himself to his creation. God is binding himself to his creation, covenanting with all of creation, through creation, with creation. Remember that he calls Adam to participate in these actions, name the animals and so on. That's when Adam discovers, right? There's not one made fit for him. God puts him into a deep sleep and then from his rib, by the way, a place of prestige and honor, not like a spare part, right? God creates the woman from one flesh and for one flesh. In other words, as God creates, his glorious acts of creation cry out that he is sevening himself to his creation. God is covenanting with creation through creation, with creation, binding himself, sevening himself to his creation. And the climax of sevening is in Genesis 1, 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. That would, by the way, include serpents. And that's next week, okay? There's a sense, there's a sense in which Adam is called to co-create with God to bring this glorious temple presence out to the entire earth. There it is. Go and bring my temple presence, right? Bring this perfecting, sanctifying, which I have given to you and entrusted to you, to the entire earth. Now, in, in my series, my CD series on uh, the temple, I talk about how when Jesus gives the Great Commission, let's turn there in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. What, what I've hopefully taught you tonight, you can apply to many, many other parts of Scripture, not least of which are the Gospels. And in Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28. His final words here to the apostles are these. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In a sense, Jesus, with the incarnation, we are, the new creation has begun. And now Jesus commissions the disciples to be co-creators with him, just as God enjoined Adam to go and renew the face of the earth. So now Jesus, the new Adam, as Paul called him, commissions the disciples to do the same. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? Bring this gift of immortality, of life, of zoe, to the ends of the earth, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You can say that in some sense, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 28, is the first great commission. For Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, not only to bring forth life, that is indeed part of it, right? 
to bear fruit, but to extend God's temple presence over the face of the earth. Now, just to anticipate a, a little bit about next week, how does Adam do with that commission? How does Eve do with that commission? Not so great. Not so great. One of the questions we have to answer is what went wrong, right? And I want to continue this temple lens next week. What we've begun here is going to help us understand next week, I think, I hope, which is to say that Adam and Eve, right, take their eyes off the tree of life, put it on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God forbid them to eat from, right? But there's another mystery. How does the serpent get in? Right? In a sense, wasn't Adam's call to be the guardian and custodian of the garden, yes? yes. I'm going to talk about and explain next week how that was the role fundamentally of the high priest in the temple and of the priests that were under his authority. So to anticipate next week, in a sense, Adam, as I'll show you, is clearly being depicted as the high priest of Eden, the high priest of the temple of Eden. But in some sense, he fails to keep the unholy out of the garden. That's step one, keep the unholy out. And then later, once you get that covered, now you can go out and bring the holiness to the ends of the earth. But if you don't keep what's meant to be holy, holy, right? We don't have anything to give away. So Adam, in some sense, fails in his role as high priest of, of the Temple of Eden by allowing this unclean serpent to enter in and to threaten the holiness of the Temple, indeed to threaten his very life and also his, his spouse, Eve. But that'll be a little bit next week. Let's just finish up tonight. We'll take a break and hopefully we can take some questions because I'm sure you have them. Okay, at the very bottom of page 8, following the, the scripture of Genesis 1, 28 Only then, only then does God declare for the seventh time, Ki tov meod, it is very good. All of creation, every creature, the stars, the seas, the mountains, the valleys, and most importantly, each and every person is part of the great and grand design of God, created and designed for worship. Let's recall, step one tonight was to put on the right lenses. Once we have them on, we cannot help but see that Genesis 1 clearly portrays the creation as a kind of divine sanctuary and Adam and Eve are in the very holiest place of that holy temple. Part two, we looked at this mystery of sevens and saw that it leads us all the way through from the first verse all the way to its culmination in Genesis 2 verse 3 to the Shabbat. As I said, the Shabbats lead to Shabbat. God sevening himself to all of creation. The number of perfection leading to the day of perfection when God rested and invited man into his presence to worship him. We, my friends, were created for worship. God brought creation and man into existence, into relation with himself. And that perfecting of creation continues even now. Through the new Adam, through the church, particularly through the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. When we hear the words, the Mass has ended, go in peace, right? That is our dismissal out of the garden, right, into the outer courts. So we've reached, 
Not the end of our study, but merely the conclusion of the first half. Genesis 2, 1 through 3 is the end of Act 1 of a two-act drama. Next time, we'll go deeper, and I really hope you have to come back for part two to get a handle on this um, Adam is high priest business. It's really fun. This is uh, fun, but that's even more fun. Man is called to participate in the life of God in his temple. And specifically, we'll learn how Adam is God's royal high priest, created for worship, called to extend God's temple presence over the face of the earth. As I said, if you're interested and want to taste more of this, I have a, a series I just finished recently called The House of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Temple in the Old and New Testament. And I have an outline that exceeds 250 pages that goes with it, that goes through it step by step from Genesis to Revelation. I think it's about time for a break, though. And so let me close this in prayer, and then we'll take a break and come back, and we can do some questions, right? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father in heaven, we're at many times at awe of your holy word and the many mysteries within it. We thank you for opening up our minds to consider the text of Genesis 1 in a fresh way. We ask that you would give us now peace in our conversation and charity in our time together as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. See you in just a couple minutes. Here comes Deacon now. Who wrote this Genesis 1 and 2? Genesis 1 and 2. The author who wrote Genesis 3 through 50, I would say to start with, right? <laughs> now, the, I'm being funny, but the, the traditional answer um, is that Moses is the author of Genesis. Now, this is a very long and involved topic. Let me just lay my cards on the table and say, I'm a traditionalist, so I believe that the core of Genesis through Deuteronomy goes back to the historic figure of Moses. Um, but I would also say that what we probably are looking at is a text that was preceded, just like the Gospels were preceded, by a long oral history. Now the Gospels didn't have a long oral history. They had probably a period of years, perhaps a couple of decades. Um, remember that the Gospels were not first written down because nobody knew, and we still don't know, right, when the Lord was coming back. But in those early days of the Gospels, the proclamation, the kerygma, was oral. Um, we don't really live and appreciate the sensibilities of an oral culture. And that's what we're dealing with here in both the early Christians and even, even more so, in a sense, in the ancient Jewish people. Now, <clears throat> Moses lived in the period of approximately 1400 B.C., okay? Uh, when was the Pentateuch written is another whole set of questions. Cardinal Ratzinger believes that it re came to its final form around the time of the exile, which would be about the 5th century, 4th century B.C. Now, that means we have a period of, if he's right about that, um, almost a thousand years there, right? Between the lifetime of Moses, assuming Mosaic authorship, and when it reaches its final form. So, today, there are many people who would, first of all, throw out Mosaic authorship altogether and simply say that it was the 
uh, four schools uh, of thought over a period of about five centuries that developed it, so the so-called documentary hypothesis. Okay? Now, can a Catholic adhere to or believe the documentary hypothesis or parts of it, that it was basically four different schools of thought? I don't know. It depends how you press into that. Um, at the outset of it, on the very perimeter, are some very radical ideas that I can't get into here that question um, the reality that is being portrayed here. Uh, I'm talking about the documentary view, multiple authorship view. On the other hand, is it possible to hold that the oral voice behind it is substantially the voice of Moses, right? What we would call the primary fundamental voice behind it that may have had some modification, very in, in, perhaps modest, right? For example, uh, Deuteronomy 34 says, uh, talks about how Moses died. Well, unless Moses wrote that prophetically, we could say perhaps that's a touch-up, right? Could there be other touch-ups? I'm of the school of thought that there, the text substantially goes back to the oral tradition to the figure of Moses himself, right? Um, but I'm certainly not opposed to the possibility that we have over that thousand-year stretch some modest development, but my keyword would be modest. Now, no whole other school of thought would reject that and say, no, it's, there's no mosaic authorship, and I, I would find that view very problematic. Okay, so I hope that answers the question in, in, in some respects. Uh, Regina, who's writing in online, uh, asks that uh, your presenta presentation seems very logical, your point's very logical. Are these universally accepted themes and ideas regarding Genesis 1 and 2? Yeah. Very good question, just to repeat it. Are these, it sounds logical, you know, can we put some weight into this? Is this just one uh, seminary professor's point of view? Um, I think we can put a lot of weight on it, but not primarily because um, modern scholars uh, talk about it in these terms. Again, in one of the footnotes, you can say, just giving you some of the modern literature. That's all modern literature. But what I think is compelling is going back and reading scripture in this sort of temple way with the ancients is actually what persuades me as well. Um, if you look at some of the early church fathers, for example, I think Deacon Sabatino started, if I believe, with a prayer from St. Ephraim, that sounded like St. Ephraim. St. Ephraim the Syrian uh, has a whole uh, treatise called the Hymns on Paradise where he very poignantly describes Eden in temple language. So at the very least, I would say, this thinking is not new. In fact, my, my uh, argument here is that it's quite an ancient way of approaching this riddle of Genesis 1. So it's certainly not something that I cooked up or other scholars uh, have sort of uh, uh, come along with as something, some kind of new invention, but a very sort of ancient way of, uh, of reading the text. So, but I think each person has to be persuaded whether or not you think it's logical or, or not. Okay. Thank you for, for coming and at least getting us started on the road to worship correctly. Um, it says here um, that Joseph Ratzinger said, hence, this creation, this Genesis, may be seen as the decisive enlightenment of history and as a breakthrough out of the fears that had oppressed humankind. Okay, now, we're dovetailing on that lecture on Sunday that Dr. Behe gave. No, 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 but in my question, science, through the lens of science was Sunday. Now, my question is evolution. At what point is, is Joseph Ratzinger saying that, that 
that humankind evolved and then out of the chaos and out of this fear of animals god planted this idea in man of of worshiping him and he created this eden i'm, I'm remember i'm struggling with sure. old old school you know legend lin myth okay. yeah uh, Okay, um, yeah, to, to kind of simply restate the question, what is Ratzinger getting at in that, in that quote, and how does evolution play in here? I want to set aside, I, I guess, the question of evolution. Uh, I would recommend a good textbook by Midwest Theological Forum. Um, Dr. Christopher Baglow, who's mentioned here in the notes, uh, has a book called Faith, Science, and Reason, where he, he both looks at it from the perspective of um, the biblical text and also science, and also a book by Stephen Barr, B-A-R-R, uh, called um, Ancient Faith, Modern Physics, or Modern Physics, Ancient Faith. I forget which phrases were, were uh, first. Um, but to your point about Ratzinger, what, what Ratzinger is really saying, and why I brought him in, is he's trying to help us understand how we have these pagan myths around the world of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 going on, in a sense, simultaneously. Now, some try to evade that question by saying, well, Genesis came first, and they copied Genesis. And I think there's just too much, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Let's just assume that some of these stories predate the writing of Genesis, even if the oral tradition goes back earlier. Let's just set aside which came first. What Ratzinger would say is it doesn't really matter whether those stories came first, because Genesis, at least the way he reads it, is a kind of critique of the popular misconceptions that were floating around. So he's not saying that the author of Genesis was in some sense uh, emulating these other myths or trying to improve upon them or that it was an evolution from these lesser ideas to a higher ideal. It's not what he's saying. I think he's seeing it as a full-on critique, a kind of almost a, a mortal combat. Remember that for the Jewish people, the idea of taking world, uh, worldviews from their neighbors would be just so much apostasy that they couldn't even bear it, right? So the idea that they would import these ideas or kind of merge them with their own is not at all what he's saying and not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if the literary form is available to the audience of Genesis and to these pagan myths, you have kind of a common vocabulary, a dialect, right, of speaking in these seven days conventions. And what he's saying, I think, is that the author of Genesis, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is combating, combating these uh, fallacious stories with the truth of Scripture. Now, I avoid using the word myth for specifically those reasons, as you said, the kind of old school ideas of legend and lore and so on. So I don't use the word myth unless I define it very, very carefully. But I can tell you a Catholic who was very comfortable with the word myth, who did believe in the inspired story of Scripture, of Genesis 1 and 2, J.R.R. Tolkien. And his way of thinking about this whole idea was that, is the way he put it is, and this is a, a loose paraphrase, that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is myth becoming reality. And if you understand that quote, you're, I think you're well on the path to understanding what Ratzinger is getting at in a little bit more theological language. But myth becoming reality, I think, is a nice way of thinking about it. Not myth evolving into reality, but myth becoming reality through the inspired author of Scripture, taking this form, and then transforming it, in a sense, flipping it upside down, right? These myths and saying, here it is, the right side up. And I think that's um, a very helpful way of thinking about it as well. But it is definitely a combat, not an um, importing of these pagan ideas. They're trying to critique it. The biblical writer's trying to critique it, uh, in some sense, almost poke fun at it and say, no, that's not how it happened. It wasn't, you know, 
Tiamat and these other gods, right? It was the living God, Yahweh Elohim, who created the world out of love, not out of violence and so on. So it becomes a kind of a contrast to, through which to look at the truth of Genesis 1. I think that's as best as I can maybe put it. Good? Okay. Maybe one more. I don't know if we have time. Yeah, Doctor, we have another uh, email coming online from Ed Micah, who, um, and you might want to get in this next week, I don't know, so feel free to reject it if you want, but he asked for, is there a valid comparison between uh, creation as a temple in Genesis and the holy city as a temple in Revelation? Oh, absolutely, and that, that I think we can definitely draw that um, comparison. The question again from Ed online, I like your prophetic last name, Micah, I don't know if it's spelled that way, but... Um, <laughs> Is, is there a comparison between uh, Genesis 1 and 2, the temple of creation, and Revelation? Why don't we end on this note? Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Just for a moment, just a couple of verses here. I think the last or so CD of my set, I deal with what I call the temple of the new creation. So I'll end on this note. In chapter 21 of Revelation, John the Evangelist writing says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now remember that in the first creation, which we didn't really focus tonight on the marriage of the man and the woman, but that's ever present in the centerpiece of that story, right? The man and the woman, a nuptial scene. And here we have this heavenly city coming down from God, prepared as a bride for her husband, the bridegroom. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and the death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. It's a vision of the new temple, right? And as the text goes on to describe, right, the lamb that was stand and is standing as though slain, meaning the risen, crucified and risen Christ, is the temple in this new creation. That is our Lord Jesus. He told his disciples in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And St. John, it took him after the resurrection to realize what Jesus really said. And he tells us in John chapter 2, I believe verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. He was speaking of the temple in his body. And St. Paul will add to that image of the temple of the Lord's body by talking about how in fact, the Lord's body is not just a temple, but the cornerstone of the temple, and we are members of that body. So for St. Paul, it's even bigger. It's the whole church is, in a sense, this new temple of the new creation. Gets very deep very quickly when you get into this stuff. I think that'll do it for tonight. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.